You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. I get asked all the time, who is Ron DeSantis? He's the kid who grew up right here in Florida, working his tail off, paying his own way through school, then volunteering to serve in the Navy and deploying to Iraq. He's the man who I fell in love with from the moment we met. And he's the dad of three very rambunctious, energetic children. Mamie, our two-year-old little comedian, Madison, our beautiful, sweet five-year-old, and Mason, our four-year-old athlete. But if you want to know who Ron DeSantis really is, when I was diagnosed with cancer and I was facing the battle for my life, He was the dad who took care of my children when I couldn't. He was there to pick me off of the ground when I literally could not stand. He was there to fight for me when I didn't have the strength to fight for myself. That is who Ron DeSantis is. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 502 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, November 20th, 2022. That was the First Lady of Florida, Casey DeSantis, wife of Ron DeSantis, governor, Republican governor of Florida, in a campaign ad that was released in the run-up to the Florida governor's race several weeks ago. They released that video. And then, of course, as you know, doubtless you know, Ron DeSantis just recently won in a major, major uh, way the re-election campaign to continue on being Florida's governor. It wasn't even close. It was 60-40. That's a huge advantage as he considers what his political future is going to be. There's a lot of people who want him to run for president. And in this episode, I want to talk about why I think that's a great idea, why I would love to see President DeSantis from everything I've seen and heard so far. And it really starts with this dynamic. Now, obviously, if you watch this video put out by the Ron DeSantis campaign, It's very well produced. It's very well shot. Uh, But, you know, there's a cynical part of us that might say, oh, well, that's just politicians being politicians. I don't think so. I could be wrong. I could be misreading it. It might just be that I want to see what I want to see. But I don't think that this being well produced is in any way a detraction from the genuineness of the story that Casey DeSantis is telling. Now, some of you may know, others, many of you probably don't know, Casey DeSantis had a career as a anchor woman prior to uh, getting married to Ron DeSantis. She, as I understand it, looking at her entry on Wikipedia, uh, worked originally early on Uh, for the Golf Channel on programs on the T and PGA Tour today. She was also a local newscaster and anchor for WJXT, an independent station in Jacksonville, Florida. She occasionally 
uh, did special reports, including for CNN, but held several positions at that local TV station in Jacksonville, including general assignment, morning anchor, police reporter. And she definitely is able to speak comfortably in front of cameras. She knows what goes into that. Similar to Carrie Lake, she's got a background in media and in news media in particular. And so she knows how that works. And that's a huge asset, right? That's a huge asset to Ron DeSantis and to his campaign that she understands the importance of optics and the importance of reinforcing your message with the imagery that you're putting out. Now, again, going back to the cynics, they might say, ah, yes, well, you know, be careful then, right? Be careful that you're not being played with a very well-produced, a very touching pluck on the heartstrings, uh, you, you know, campaign ad here. Don't make necessarily too much of that. But I would say that applies if you're on the Trump train and you've never gotten off and it's MAGA all the way. Uh, that also applies to Trump, definitely. He capitalized on understanding optics and the power of images and the power of symbols. It comes through in his rhetoric. It comes through in his holding rallies across the U.S. for, what, uh, six years now and then some. He was a feature in a lot of movies that were shot at his properties, and that was kind of the deal. If you want to film Home Alone, for instance, Lost in New York, you're going to have to uh, allow Trump to have a cameo, for instance. He was also big, uh, you know, as far as a, a reality TV uh, personality. It, everybody knew who he was prior to his announcing that he was running for president. And he capitalized and still capitalizes on his understanding of the importance of media. Now, everyone who opposes him also understands the importance of images and symbols and the power of the imagery in kicking him off of social media, right? He's now back on, Trump is, uh, on Twitter. He's able to tweet again, but he's said repeatedly he has no intentions of going back. He's got his no, his own uh, social media platform, Truth Social, which I haven't checked out. I still have yet to hear of anybody who's gone on there and uh, is using it. I'm sure there are uh, a lot of Americans who miss him so bad. There's a, a bit of uh, you know throwback Thursday feel, nostalgia uh, to a, a bygone, not all that long ago, but it feels like a long time ago, given the way things are going. Uh, time in our country's uh, you know recent history where things were going better, where we were winning, we were headed in the right direction in a lot of ways, especially economically and in terms of foreign policy. There was a, a wind in our sails at our backs that gave us a, a much brighter outlook. But I'm not as interested in pining for the good old days, whenever those were. There is no new thing under the sun. And that includes uh, Trump's recently announced third bid for the White House. He has had a special counsel appointed to investigate him by Biden's Department of Justice. Merrick Garland, the attorney general, insists that this is not politically motivated, but at the same time uh, also says explicitly 
part of what's factoring into their decision to appoint a special counsel is the fact that Biden may run again in 2024 and Trump has just announced that he is running again in 2024. And so I don't know what you call that except uh, denial. It's not just a river in Egypt. I don't know what you call that except for politically motivated that he is running for president of the United States of America again. But the flip side is too, I mean, obviously, obviously, uh, all of these things are going to be politically motivated. And you do have to factor in whether you choose to investigate the guy, whether you choose to deplatform the guy or continue, you know, keeping him off of your platform like Facebook uh, still is keeping him off or whether you let him back on like Elon Musk very recently did this week, uh, announced after a poll of, I believe it was 15 million, one five, 15 million users on Twitter. He reinstated Trump to where Trump can come back if he wants to. I think, again, the power of imagery and symbols, that is a good gesture. But I want to talk about Ron DeSantis because I think he is, from everything I've seen, and we've seen quite a lot of it, Trump, and I think we've seen uh, enough of DeSantis, I think DeSantis is objectively a better candidate. And I want to tell you why I think that. And it's not to knock Trump. He definitely has uh, his problems. But it is to say there are ways that you can emphasize someone else's strengths without having to attack the alternatives. And it is uh, just a, a fact. It's a fact that Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump are the talk of the town for potential frontrunners for the Republican uh, ticket. They are who everyone is talking about. Yes, Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Pennsylvania, has a little bit of buzz around him that he might run, but he doesn't have nearly the strong record that DeSantis does. DeSantis has a lot going for him in for one, his background as a Navy SEAL. For two, uh, the fact that he led well through the woke nonsense and COVID hysteria. If I look at his Wikipedia page, I see that he also was born in Jacksonville, uh, but then spent most of his childhood in Dunedin, Florida. Fun fact, I was curious about Dunedin because it, it makes me think of, you know, the Dunedin Ranger and Aragorn and you know, all that from Lord of the Rings. Where does this uh, name for the town that he grew up in come from? Uh, actually, it is taken from Scottish Gaelic, Dunedin, the Scottish Gaelic name for Edinburgh. But nevertheless, what we have in his having grown up there is, uh, I mean, again, a little more than just a Lord of the Rings reference, potentially. We have a place where Nielsen, like if you've heard of Nielsen ratings for uh, TV shows and whatnot, Nielsen actually was headquartered until 2005. Now, I don't know if that affects somebody who grows up in that town. Probably does to some extent. Uh, just, you know, it probably changes a little bit of the feel of the place. Although, um, them leaving in 2005 is curious. Uh, it is the smallest locality in the U S 
that hosts uh, training camps for Major League Baseball. Uh, also, too, there's a little bit of controversy surrounding Dunedin. They've been accused in that town of draconian fining of residents for, I would say, some very trivial things, some very silly things. In five and a half years, the city has collected nearly $3.6 million in fines, sometimes tens of thousands at a time, for violating laws that prohibit grasses taller than 10 inches, recreational vehicles parked on streets at certain hours or sightings, and bricks that don't match. Uh, the case was dropped about a month after it was initiated, and this uh, case, uh, I should say, was a Florida woman who was being fined $100,000 for a dirty pool and overgrown grass. Uh, that, <laughs> that case was dropped after it was initiated in 2019 due to intense national scrutiny. But this really, I mean, I, right here, again, this gives us some idea potentially of some influences in DeSantis's upbringing, if this is kind of the vibe of the community that he grew up in. It's important to note how that would affect someone constantly hearing about people being treated with excessive severity for relatively minor things. You could bankrupt somebody, depending on who it is. You could destroy them financially and socially, levying the kinds of fines that we're talking about here, $250 to $500 per day accruing violation policy per city codes. Um, you know, we're, we're talking a ridiculously heavy-handed approach to maintaining a clean and uh, pristine community potentially. But that could either, on the one hand, speak to something that DeSantis has picked up on as far as how to be tough, right? There's, there's no denying that's a tough uh, approach. That's a no-nonsense approach, zero-tolerance approach to not upkeeping your property and the effect that that's going to have on the property values of the people around you or the general vibe and feeling of the community. But also, too, it, you know, it, it might not have just taught Ron DeSantis how to be tough, like we've seen a lot of toughness from him. It also might have taught him how important it is that the government be able to restrain itself, right? You know, I grew up, for instance, in eastern Montana and saw my dad's dream, lifelong dream of being a farmer like his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather, et cetera, et cetera, before him. I saw that dream threatened and ultimately destroyed by a corrupt local USDA official in Dawson County who was a bully, who said, I say jump and you ask how high or else I'll take your farm to all of the farmers and ranchers in Dawson County. I've talked about that before. I'm not going to get into it in, in depth again here, but I will say that has definitely informed my view of how big government should be and how much power we invest in government officials, especially at a local level. But all the more, uh, you know, do I see a potential for Ron DeSantis governing the way that he did the state of Florida through COVID because he recognized on a personal level from many anecdotal uh, situations he might have seen growing up, what impact on a single person's life a heavy-handed government response to a problem can be and, and have. The cure can be worse than the illness. 
In other words, if you say, ah, you haven't cut your grass, it's 10 inches tall, or your pool is dirty, we're going to fine you $100,000 and basically drive you out of the community if you don't knuckle under. Now, let's do that at a national level, at a global level with regards to a uh, very bad cold and flu that came from China. You know, I'm speculating here. I don't know for a fact that that went into DeSantis's attitude, his refusing, for instance, to declare a state of emergency for Florida. He was pressured to, but he refused to do that uh, during COVID. A lot of people predicted in the media and on the left that Florida was going to have uh, it's just people dying left and right as a result of his refusing to shut the state down, his pushing back against mandates and such in his borders. Actually, according, again, to Wikipedia, his deciding against declaring a state of emergency in Florida during COVID did not lead to additional deaths. Florida came out supposedly about on average compared with the rest of the country, but Florida's economy fared much better than places like New York and California, places that shut down hard and fast and stayed shut down for a long time and destroyed people's livelihoods and their small businesses and their careers and their relationships and their lives. Uh, Children who missed out on their childhood experiences because they weren't allowed to go places or meet with people or live life. If there were still people that died anyways, and Florida proved to the rest of the country that actually it didn't make a difference, it didn't help, the lockdowns didn't help They just upset a lot of people and they caused a lot of additional damage on top of the damage that was done by the illness itself. Well, that was a great service, not just to the people of Florida, but also to the people across America who looked at Florida as a good example and as a ray of sunshine and a glimmer of hope and otherwise a a very dark time. The messaging that came out of Florida and from Ron DeSantis, the example that was set by Ron DeSantis, not just, but but especially him, I would say, was a shot in the arm in a good way, not, not like the COVID vaccine that gives you myocarditis, but it was a shot in the arm uh, in a good way. It was a, a pep talk for people like me here in Colorado, in Weld County, Colorado, where we also in Weld County didn't shut things down the way that they did in a lot of places. And the, the way that a lot of Colorado did, Weld County's got a very strong local government that is conservative and independent and willing to push back against Governor Polis and the Democrats in the state who uh, like to push you know, their own nonsense like leftists do. But seeing a whole state in Florida that stayed open, kept people employed, kept people being able to live their lives on some level, uh, that was really, really positive. And I'm not somebody, you know, I'm looking at the COVID thing. It was a huge, huge deal. It's still a huge deal. We're still feeling the effects. I don't believe we should offer COVID amnesty to bad actors and tyrants who uh, exploited this crisis, maybe even caused it in uh, many cases. But I'm not somebody who was unaffected. My mother, until recently, lived in Fort Myers, Florida. And my 
mother's side of the family, a lot of them live in Florida. I have a cousin that I was close to, probably the closest uh, I was close to any of my cousins on my mom's side. Uh, my cousin Amy contracted COVID and passed away from it. And that was very sad. And I was uh, I was very disappointed that I found out about it um, kind of after the fact, after everything was said and done. I didn't even know she was sick. And then all of a sudden I found out that she had passed. Um, my grandmother during COVID passed away on that side of the family. My mother's mother passed away. And because of how Colorado was, and we had just moved here and the situation, I, I didn't feel comfortable flying to Florida to attend my own grandmother's funeral because there was so much craziness. And yet through COVID and my mother living there and a lot of extended family on my mom's side living in Florida, I was happy that Ron DeSantis was at the helm because the only thing worse than having a loved one get COVID and pass away from it is you don't even feel like you can go to the funeral or you don't even feel like you can go and see them or you're not allowed. In some places, family wasn't even allowed to go in and see their loved one who had COVID and who was dying. And that's just unconscionable, right? The only thing worse than a loved one passing away is them passing away alone and you not being able to see them or them passing away and you not being able to grieve them together as is proper. And it's not that Ron DeSantis got in the way. It's that leftists across the country, across the U.S. and here in Colorado, got in the way of people living life. They were so afraid of death due to COVID that they were willing to destroy everything else just to try and protect themselves. And all the more because that fear and that tyranny gripped so many and made them crazy or made them uh, you know, more of a menace. If they were already kind of a menace waiting in the wings, this was their moment to spread their wings and uh, <laughs> take to the sky. In such an environment, DeSantis providing the leadership that he did, and he still is, we need that at a national level. We need that at the helm. Now, I know Trump has criticized him for his handling of the COVID response. I think that's rich. Uh, I think people who live in glass houses should not throw stones. And there's nothing negative that I can think of that could be said of DeSantis about early, early response that couldn't be said even more of Trump's early, early response. And besides just the COVID, uh, you also have, uh, I would say, arguably a more pernicious illness, an illness of the mind and the heart in uh, wokeism, which DeSantis has also pushed back on. Uh, I think his exact line after winning re-election here a few weeks ago was that Florida is where woke goes to die. And that's a great line. And Right now, between COVID and the woke business and climate change and globalism, we need strong leadership that is comprehensive and holistic and disciplined. That is the word that keeps cropping up. So that's the word that keeps coming to my mind. I am hearing others say that and recognize that as well, that there's more discipline in Ron DeSantis' approach as he pushes back on these things. He knows when to stop. He knows how to fight the idea without trying to destroy people. He's not afraid 
to be blunt with individuals, but he sticks to the substance. And that is a good example. That's something that our political discourse, our public discourse has been sorely lacking. Trump did not help that. And insofar as, you know, even when Trump has said some mean, ugly things and made some not so veiled threats against DeSantis, recognizing him as a potential rival going into 2024, DeSantis is proving the characterizations of him by those who like him and are admiring him from afar, that he is more disciplined. He's proving those characterizations true by not needing to punch back. And he was recently asked what he thinks of the attacks against him or the criticisms. Uh, attack is, I think, a, a fine word for it. It is an attack from Trump. And I want you to hear what he had to say, because this is this is really good stuff. This is a good attitude. It's a good mindset. It's a good example, more to the point, of what would help a lot of us to be able to discuss things at every level in the way that we need to, in order to be able to make decisions together, in order to have uh, you know, a, a politically sustainable situation in this country, not just at a governmental level, but also among the constituency and the governed. But take a listen. Take a listen to this clip of Ron DeSantis and his response, the way he reframes the question asked about Trump's attacks on him. I'd like to know what you think about Trump's big announcement and some of the less than flattering comments he has made about you. Well, you know, one of the things I've learned, like learned in this job, is um, uh, when you're do when you're leading, when you're getting getting things done, yeah, you take incoming fire. That's just the nature of it. Uh, I roll out of bed in the morning. I've got corporate media outlets that have a spasm just the fact that I'm getting up in the morning, and it's constantly attacking. And this is just what's happened. I don't think any governor got attacked more, particularly by corporate media, than me over my four-year term. And yet, I think what you, what you learn is all that's just noise. And really what matters is, are you leading? Are you getting in front of issues? Uh, are you delivering results for people? And are you standing up for folks? And if you do that, then none of that stuff matters. And, and that's what we've done. We focused on results and leadership. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I would just uh, tell people to go check out the scoreboard from last Tuesday night. Now, the fact of the matter is, You know, the fact of the matter is, we, um, it, it was the, the, the greatest uh, Republican victory in the history of the state of Florida. And it wasn't just the best governor victory, of course it was that, but we swept in, we swept in super majorities in the Florida legislature. We have 85 Republicans out of 120 in our state house. We've never had that many before. We have 28 senators out of 40 that are Republicans. Never had that many, and honestly, they could have had 29 if they would have done the Osceola one. You know, I, we won Osceola County uh, at the top of the ticket, and I think we probably could have done that. So, so you see that. You see the school boards. We're electing all these great people to school boards. We had t 16 Republican members of the U.S. House from Florida. Now we have 20 uh, going up there. So that's four, four seats right there. So, so at the end of the day, I think people respond to, to the leadership. They respond uh, to the results. And so that's why 
even though I know anytime I do anything and you're over the target, you know, you're going to face incoming. That's just the nature of it. But that's not uh, ultimately uh, what matters to people. What matters to people is are you standing up for them? Are you leading? And are you getting things done? And we are. And we are. And we, and we are, he says. <laughs> and that's great. That's a, that's a great attitude. That, that is an exemplary attitude that speaks to not just discipline, that also speaks to self-control which we need more of. We can't sustain liberty. Here's my big idea. <clears throat> this is my foundational principle to what makes conservatism possible and what makes the original idea of America, of limited government over top of your federal, state, uh, local levels, your city level, your munici municipality, your county level, Limited government there and self-government. In order to have self-government, you have to have self-control. You can't have self-control among the people if the government is always stepping in and telling you, you must do this, you can't do that, you have to ask permission. You can't have self-government if you have to have permission to do everything. Uh, you, you also can't have self-government and, and actually, this is two sides of the same coin. If you don't have examples leading who themselves are displaying self-control, that there's a problem. I, I think relative, uh, you, you know, DeSantis and, and Trump and our support one way or the other, there's a problem with our maybe undervaluing those who are saying, oh, it's got to be Trump. It's got to be Trump. There's a problem with undervaluing self-control and the importance of self-control. I don't think that we need a big government to come in and spend all our money better uh, and, and have power over us. Uh, I, I think actually what we need more than that is someone who's going to get up and have restraint and discipline and know when to stop talking and what to not say. Not just knowing what to say, but knowing what to not say. Not just knowing what to do, but knowing what to not do. And, it, you know, it's not all or nothing, clearly. As I've said before, if Trump runs again, if he wins the nomination, I will vote for him. And I think if he does, it, he would be much better served. America would be much better served for him to ask DeSantis politely to be his uh, VP pick, to be the other half of that ticket. I think that would be very good. That would be very wise and prudent of Trump to stop attacking DeSantis and to look for ways to uh, actually affirm him in case DeSantis ends up being the pick. If he ends up winning the nomination, actually, I, what I would love to see on the, the other side of it is DeSantis consulting Trump and his administration and his cabinet, the people that worked for four years from 2016 to 2020 for the American people. And I think they accomplished some really great things. I would love to see DeSantis you know, utilizing what they've known. But I look at this response here and I note not just what he is saying, but also what he's not saying. The, the top comment actually for the YouTube video, I was just playing the clip for you from, from WPTV News, Florida, Palm Beaches and Treasure Coast, uh, that channel. The top comment from a Tess uh, RN want to go places from four days ago, she says, I'm glad DeSantis answered that question about Trump without putting more fire to the situation. More, uh, Some people, 
She says, wanted a bad reaction from him, and the media was expecting something negative from him and didn't get it. Bravo. And there's 138 replies to her comment. There's 604 upvotes. Uh, She's exactly right. The media wants to see Trump and DeSantis, uh, you know, mud wrestling and making themselves look ridiculous. Bravo to DeSantis to having the discipline to not do that, to not give them what they're wanting, to not, you know, punch back. This is actually, and I'll I'll say this, for those who are more pacifistic or, or more peaceful, Christians in particular, often throughout the past 2,000 years have wrestled with what does Jesus telling us to not resist an evil man or to turn the other cheek if we're struck on the one cheek, turn to them the other also. You know, how does that come into play? I think it comes into play exactly like this, to where you say, you know what, just look at the scoreboard, right? We accomplished some things. We're standing up for people. We're trying to deliver for the people of Florida. We are getting things accomplished at every level in the state of Florida from the local school board to the state legislature to the governor's mansion. At every level, we are serving the people of Florida and the Florida people, uh, the, the, the people of Florida, the Florida people recognize that, right? They, they see that, they appreciate that, they value that, and that's why we just won re-election. I would, people are going to say things that are negative. They're going to act out. They're going to be ugly. The media especially is going to put on blast anything that they think uh, will get them clicks and views and also advance the agenda that is favored by most of the people in the corporate media. But we're not going to give them what they want. We're just going to keep focusing on doing our job, right? Success is the best response. And again, you know, talking about my mother, right? I, I literally FaceTimed with my mother as she sat on a balcony in Fort Myers, Florida, and the hurricane was overhead. I, I heard the wind whipping around. She was in this little alcove in a, a, a doorway on the second floor of her condominium complex. And it was just her and her cooler with her little chihuahua and some medications and documentation, her wallet and things like that. And I FaceTimed with my mother through Hurricane Ian. And it was several days before my brother was able to get down there and get her out, get some of the things that were able to be salvaged. A lot wasn't salvageable, but a lot that was salvageable, they got out and they brought back here to Colorado. She's now safe in a house that she's renting. State Farm came through for her on paying for four months worth of uh, rent and utilities. And uh, you know her, her car was ruined, her Prius was totally a, a loss because it was submerged in water. It was very, very scary for my brother and I to talk her through that day and then subsequent days when there's no power, when there's looting that's happening. You know, the, the messaging from Ron DeSantis regarding the looters was we have zero tolerance for that. He, he helped to give a stage and a microphone to local sheriffs and law enforcement who said in no uncertain terms, if you go into somebody's residence, their property, to try and loot, to try and exploit what's happening right now, you can expect 
to be carried out because you're going to get yourself shot. And this is a Second Amendment (laughs) uh, affirming state. And this is a Second Amendment affirming part of the state. And we will not tolerate you going and looting and trying to pillage people's uh, belongings. It was very important that they said that, that they sent the National Guard in, that they got the roads cleared, that they got things, uh, you, you know, stabilized, right? That was the result of not just DeSantis's actions, but also his leadership, his example, the tone that he sets, the people he puts in positions of influence and uh, you know the, the people that he puts in positions where they're able to actually work hard and deliver for the people of Florida. If that is a preview of what he would do as president of the United States, uh, I think it, it's a really good look, and it's something that we should want. You know, you, you, the the test, right? The test is not how does somebody sound, how does somebody act, how does somebody look. When things are going really well, the test is, is somebody composed under fire when it's a crisis? That's the moment of truth. Somebody could talk tough all they want, but when the rubber meets the road, when there's a hurricane overhead, well, then what do you do, right? When there's a crisis, then what do you do? When you see trouble coming, actually, more to the point, what do you do? Do you shrug? Proverbs talks about this. That the fool sees trouble coming and continues on. But the wise see trouble coming and they hide themselves or they make preparations. That's more to the point. You don't necessarily be uh, uh, wise uh, in every case by hiding, but you, you prepare, right? That's the big idea. DeSantis was prepared before Hurricane Ian hit. Now, it changed course because sometimes hurricanes do that. You can't control. You got to understand the difference between what you can control and what you can't control, just like with COVID, just like with everything else. You you have to be able to differentiate. He couldn't control where Hurricane Ian was going to hit compared with where it did hit. It was expected to make landfall, I believe, in Tampa. And then it actually ended up hitting Fort Myers pretty well dead on. But what you can control before it hits is giving people advanced notice. You need to get out and clear a path and you need to evacuate. What you can control is you can have a whole lot of men in particular standing by ready to go in as soon as the storm clears to be able to restore power, restore clean water, restore access to the roads to be able to you know drive in and out. What you can control And then you do, and it shows. The proof of the pudding is in the tasting. The proof of the pudding is not in the rhetoric, is not in the sales pitch of the pudding. And I just think, again, as somebody with some connections to Florida, even though I'm not a resident of Florida, with family that lives there, with a mom who very recently lived there, I, I can't imagine thinking more highly of what I have seen, what's been demonstrated, what I've heard, and what I've also, just as much, not heard, out of Ron DeSantis. Uh, I think he has a lot going for him. And this holds true not just for COVID, not just for Hurricane Ian. It also holds true for, for instance, uh, the spat with Walt Disney. Walt Disney is this huge company, right? Major corporation, 
very powerful. They own a lot of well-known big-name entities and properties in media. And actually, it's funny. My son, Solomon, he was just trying out the airdrop feature on one of our iPhones yesterday. And he airdropped, just to see if he could, this video of Gabriel Iglesias talking about Disney and how big Disney is and how you don't want to get on the bad side of Disney. And I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and play this little clip because I want to use this as a way of talking about how remarkable uh, the, the way of handling Disney was that Ron DeSantis spearheaded. Uh, take a listen. This is Gabriel Iglesias talking about his relationship with and uh, perspective on Walt Disney Company. I recently signed a contract with ABC Television in hopes of producing my very own sitcom for TV. Here's the problem. ABC is owned by Disney. Disney is such a huge brand that anytime someone threatens the way you look at that brand, they are dealt with in a very un-Disney-like way. This sitcom that I'm producing is about me. I play myself. I play Gabriel Iglesias. It's about me, my family, my friends. My friend Martin is not allowed on the show. Not per me. Take it up with the mouse. They look at your social media. They look at all of your stuff that you have on, online. If there's anything about you that doesn't fit that model, they will freaking... Mm. And I'm paranoid because Disney's so big. They're so huge. They own television stations. They own radio stations. I don't need that phone call, you know? Now, okay, so there's Gabriel Iglesias, stand-up comedian, talking about how you don't want to cross Disney and how big they are and how important they are and how influential and, uh, and how concerned about their bottom line and their image and what they're putting out there. Now, remember, if you will, the so-called Don't Say Gay bill that was you know, in the works in Florida. Now, it wasn't actually called that. Keep in mind, it wasn't actually called Don't Say Gay, but that's what the media tried to spin it as. What it really was, actually, I think it was rather too modest, but it was better than nothing, right? It was better than nothing. It was legislation saying that Florida public schools could not be teaching children younger than eight explicit sexual gender theory uh, sex education, comprehensive sex education, Uh, like we've seen in public schools all across the U.S., graphic descriptions and imagery of sexual activity to children uh, all the way down to kindergarten, all the way up. The claim and the premise is that children have a human right to sexual activity to uh, being sexualized. So therefore, the inverse of this, this is actually just uh, a a perverted way of twisting language. The inverse is that therefore, public schools are going to sexualize your children, right? Republicans in the state of Florida, led by Ron DeSantis, were going to put some boundaries on that and say, not younger than I believe the age was eight. Somebody fact check me on that and tell me I'm wrong. But I believe it was eight. 
So if you're younger than eight, you can't be exposed to this. That's too young. So they weren't even saying, you know, middle schoolers, high schoolers can't be shown this stuff. But they were trying to put some boundaries on the sexualization of children. Walt Disney Company comes out and starts threatening Florida as a state and Ron DeSantis specifically. And you just heard Gabriel Iglesias talking about how Disney is so big and they own so much. And so you don't want to get that phone call from Yoda. And I, I cut it off because he, you know, he drops the F-bomb there. But you don't want to get the call from Yoda saying, uh, messed up you did, you know, because it could be curtains for your career. It, it, you know, like a lot of places, news stations, for instance, may all of a sudden start running fake stories about you and how you're radioactive just to make sure you don't work for anyone ever again, right? You become too too much of a liability for even Disney's competitors, not to speak of who all is under the Disney umbrella. Ron DeSantis didn't back down. Florida Republicans, under the leadership of Ron DeSantis, did not back down. And they said, no, we, this is unacceptable. You are not the government of the state of Florida. We are. We are the elected representatives. We are the public servants. You're not going to tell us what we can and cannot pass as far as legislation. And then what comes out after that? It wasn't just that. It wasn't just that they did what they were going to do anyways. DeSantis and Republicans in the state of Florida went after Disney. And they revoked this special self-governing status. Uh, As I understand it, Disney for decades has been its own, almost autonomous zone in Florida. And then all of a sudden, some very curious things start coming out which I haven't seen much of for a while, about a lot of Disney employees being arrested, charged, investigated for child porn and pedophilia and molesting children, etc. All of a sudden, they don't have that self-governing status anymore. They don't have that tax-exempt status anymore. And what, right? Was that the end of the world? No. See, the funny thing is, I think actually... (laughs) <laughs> the media might just, especially, you know, you know, not because it's all under the sway of Disney, but because it's adjacent to Disney. I mean, Disney has its own gravity, its own gravitational pull on people who want to make money and be successful, so-called. But then also, too, they have a certain sensibility, a certain mindset, a certain ethos that is shared by the corporate media more broadly, even if the rest of the corporate media is not owned by Disney. And here again, I think it's an asset to DeSantis that his wife was uh, a news reporter. She's worked in media at a local TV station for the PGA Tour, the Golf Channel, etc. She knows how these things work. Uh, Also, too, I think it speaks well of DeSantis and the model that he has built of leadership, the example that he's setting and has been setting in Florida, that they told Florida... We're going to do it anyways, regardless of whether Walt Disney likes it, because Walt Disney is not your government. We are your government. Walt Disney needs to know its place. And oh, by the way, speaking of Walt Disney knowing its place, we need to take a look at some rather untoward arrangements that have been going on for too long. Clearly, Disney has gotten a little full of itself and 
needs to be treated like any other corporation, right? Not every corporation gets a huge swath of uh, acreage, you know, square miles upon square miles, and then is allowed to be self-governing like they're their own country. You know, not every corporation gets these special tax-exempt breaks. And those tax-exempt breaks, by the way, those are supposed to be <laughs> a net benefit for the state, right? For the state of Florida or any other state, you give tax breaks because you want to incentivize more of the same. At the point that a corporation actually becomes a net negative and a, a kind of cancer, well then, you've got to do just the opposite. You've got to penalize that entity to bring it either back into a parity with other corporations that don't get those special perks. Let's say, hey, let's just treat everybody the same and you're going to have to make it or break it on your own. Uh, they're big enough that, you know, they, if they're not succeeding regardless of the special privileges being revoked, uh, you know, again, it's of a piece with the woke nonsense and parents uh, hopefully not wanting their kids to be brainwashed into becoming homosexuals and transgendered and godless, et cetera, et cetera. But Trump, by contrast, or in a comparison, you know, his announcement last week that he is running again, he's seeking a third term or a second term, if you will. Some people would say third term. I, that's a slip of the tongue. Uh, he, he's making a third bid, but to some people's minds, he never stopped being president. He still is the uh, legitimate president. Biden's just an usurper. A pause, actually. <laughs> that is a funny thing. Trump is good at that. Uh, he referred to Biden's administration, his four years, as being a pause in the Make America Great Again project. But Trump says, oh, you know, when I win again, we're going to put a stop to men participating in women's sports. And we're going to put a stop to critical race theory being taught in public schools. Any public school that teaches CRT will see their federal funding removed. Uh, you know, the, the, There's talk of people who are conservative commentators like myself radicalizing people online. No, no, no. If you want to know who's radicalizing who, it is the public education system and companies like Walt Disney and our children, right? That's actually where the radicalization is happening. But it's one thing for Trump to promise it if he gets back in. It's another thing for DeSantis to have done something very concrete and uh, and actually very gutsy in actual fact. And he's still there, right? And he's still there. And the people of Florida didn't punish him uh, when they went to vote a few weeks ago. They rewarded him. He won over former Florida governor, Charlie Crist, now running as a Democrat, if that tells you anything. There's a lot of them. Actually, the 12 Republicans who voted in the Senate for this so-called Respect for Marriage Act, uh, codifying gay marriage at a federal level, uh, they really should come out of the closet. I think they're, they're, they're closet Democrats, and it's time to think of them and, and uh, refer to them as such. But Charlie Crist got 40% of the vote to DeSantis's 60%. And that should tell us something. Now, going back to Trump a little bit, because it's impossible, I think, to talk about the potential for a DeSantis run. And he hasn't, actually, right? To be fair, he might not run. 
for president in 2024. <clears throat> he was asked actually by Charlie Crist if he would pledge and promise on the debate stage to not run for president. I think he phrased it differently, but will you pledge to complete your four-year term? And I believe what DeSantis said was the only tired old donkey that I want to put out to pasture is Charlie Crist, right? Which wasn't a no, but it wasn't a yes either, right? It's like, first things first, you (laughs) are done. I'm going to win this. But you really can't talk about the potential for Ron DeSantis running for president in 2024 without talking about Trump and doing the compare and contrast thing. Everybody's doing it right now. We have to. Not for no reason. You you have to. But look at the poll, which we talked about in our last episode, of Florida Republicans asked about both DeSantis and Trump. DeSantis has a 45-point advantage over Trump. As far as Floridians go, and who would know better than Floridians, they've actually been experiencing his uh, competence and his leadership for several years now, Florida Republicans, 66 to 21, would rather see Ron DeSantis in the White House than Trump. That's huge. That's huge, ladies and gentlemen. And I think of this, it's not necessarily a one-to-one, but I do believe that the principles that we have for church government in the New Testament, for instance, or uh, the principles that we have for government more generally in the Old Testament, I do believe that those should inform what principles we hold to when it comes to civil government. Yes, even here in the United States of America, say what you will about separation of church and state, how far that separation should be and whether and where. One of the things that is very, very high on the priority list for officers in the church when Paul writes qualifications to Timothy and Titus in the New Testament, he says that, for for one, first of all, he must be the husband of one wife, right? The husband of one wife. And I think this at least strongly implies that he's not been divorced and remarried. It at least strongly implies that. But at a minimum, this is speaking to his not being uh, polygamous. Right, which is to say, you do have Christians in the early church who have been divorced and remarried. You do have Christians in the early church potentially who are polygamists, possibly, maybe, but must be the husband of one wife. DeSantis can check that box. Trump can't. Uh, another thing too, must be able to manage his own household well, and the reason is explicitly given because if he's not able to manage his own household well, why would you put him in charge? of the church. If he mismanages his home, he's also going to mismanage the church. So in other words, you have, I think, the basis for bottom-up evaluations of competence and character enshrined in the qualifications for overseers and deacons for Christians. This should, this must, inform in some form or fashion uh, our political philosophy So let's do the compare and contrast between DeSantis and Trump. I don't even have to get into the details to say, I like what I'm seeing with DeSantis from that standpoint much more than I like what I've seen from Trump. Trump's children are grown. Uh, They have served in his administration. They've helped on the campaign trail. 
They seem like they're very loyal. They speak well of their father in public, right? They refer to him as their father, right? They don't necessarily, <laughs> that I can think of very often, uh, talk about him as dad. They refer to him as father. So they're very respectful. They stick together. They have his back. That's cool. But nevertheless, if this is a question of degrees and to what extent, DeSantis is way ahead in terms of, again, that video clip that I played at the top of this episode. That's who Ron DeSantis is. Casey DeSantis, beautiful. Their three children, beautiful. Younger, yes. But that's all right, actually. And actually, if I might, uh, I think given some other things that we're hearing and seeing right now and that we're dealing with at a societal level, at a cultural level, economically, socially, culturally, we need to see an example of a younger family that has young children and is able to walk and chew gum at the same time. In other words, raise a family and be successful and to be principled and to be intact and to be respectful and disciplined and self-controlled and to serve their neighbor. You know, to serve one another well, to love one another well. Casey DeSantis, First Lady of Florida, is speaking to that. She says her husband was there when she was diagnosed with cancer to pick her up when she literally didn't have the strength to stand up on her own power. Ron DeSantis took care of her and the children like a champ. And that's who Ron DeSantis is. And you know what? We've got a lot of young men in this country who need to see that kind of an example. And for that matter too, we've got a lot of young women in this country who need to hear someone like Casey DeSantis speaking well of her husband, honoring her husband, recognizing his contributions. Could there be skeletons in closets? Trump alludes to some things that he knows that he's going to release. You know, Candace Owens touched on this in uh, one of her episodes that I was watching and listening to yesterday while I was doing remote programming from home. My whole family's sick, by the way. So all the plans we had for yesterday and today and for the, probably the next week going into Thanksgiving, uh, they are canceled, probably. <clears throat> Thankfully, it's Thanksgiving week, actually. It's, a, it's an unusual blessing that we don't have anywhere we have to be this coming week. And now that I'm set up with remote programming just in time, I can be home. I can work from home. I am working from home all through the weekend on this air skid uh, auto reset project. But Candace Owens, she brought up Trump, who she respects and admires and appreciates and considers a friend, but nevertheless disagrees with here and challenges here, rightly so. You know what, Trump? If you have information, Mr. President, if you have information that is damaging, that would cause us to not vote for Ron DeSantis, you should have already released it, right? You shouldn't be holding on to it as leverage. That's not appropriate. The American people deserve to know if there's some reason why DeSantis is not such a good guy that we shouldn't be voting for him, then you should have already released that information and you shouldn't be holding it as leverage to try and get him to do what you want him to do. And she's absolutely right. She's absolutely right. If I'm not seeing DeSantis having skeletons in his closet, but there are skeletons in his closet, well, join the crowd. That's, this is you know, part of us being finite creatures. But here's the thing, a couple things, actually. One, Trump should know better than anybody 
the unfairness and the injustice of making an allegation or an insinuation that's supposed to be damaging to another person that proves out in the long run to be not justified, but is politically motivated. It seems to me as though he should be relating to DeSantis the way that he would want to be related to, and he's not. Or he wasn't when he said the things that he said about DeSantis, calling him desanctimonious and all that kind of stuff, threatening to release damaging information, claiming that he knows Ron DeSantis better than anybody, perhaps even his wife, or except possibly his wife, I think is how he phrased it, which is just a, that's a conceited blowhard thing to say. Of course, you don't know him better than his wife does. Of course you don't. But Candace Owens is exactly right. And we should not be assuming that somebody is guilty until proven innocent. That's backwards. That's the opposite of due process. And that's not a biblical standard of justice. In fact, we're explicitly told in God's word that charges should only be admitted against someone on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's true in the Old Testament. That's true in the New Testament. Trump could say what he wants, but Candace Owens is right. If you have some evidence of wrongdoing, impropriety on the part of Ron DeSantis that the American people need to know, well, then we need to know it right now. And we've needed to know it ever since you knew it. And if you haven't told us and you're waiting to release it until just the right time, well, shame on you. Uh, respectfully, shame on you. That's disgraceful. But what wasn't disgraceful, and I you know, I, I give full marks to the Daily Wire. I think several of the hosts there have been very clear. I was curious, actually, in the run-up to recording this episode about Ron DeSantis, uh, I was curious what their perspective is on Trump and DeSantis as two options. Now, Michael Knowles, I think for his part, uh, he would prefer to see Trump. I get that impression. Andrew Clavin, he's not mysterious at all about it. He says, no, I, I think he should step aside and he should let DeSantis be the guy that uh, you know runs in 2024. He should amplify that. He should encourage him in that. Ben Shapiro has been very critical of Trump. Uh, you know, I think even-handed, good Trump, bad Trump is what he used to call it when Trump was in office. Matt Walsh, I uh, haven't heard him say a whole lot about it. I think he just, he, by and large, is uh, not as front and center about that. He's more focused on the what is a woman, transgender, transing the kids, sex education, peace, defending the traditional definition of marriage, peace here lately. But nevertheless, even though you have you know, several big personalities at the Daily Wire who are not necessarily sold on Trump running again, and they do think DeSantis is looking really strong. We'll see. We'll see how the primary process goes. Nevertheless, they have this uh, feature on Daily Wire Plus called My Dinner with Trump, which I sat down and I watched the other night you know, family sick, all laid up. And I thought, oh, I, I'm working from home anyways. I'll watch this while I work. And I thought it was really a good look for Trump and the members of his cabinet who were there at the dinner. Not everybody showed up, but the ones who did come to this dinner, uh, it, it, their conversation back and forth was just really fascinating. And maybe it gives us a glimpse into how the White House was run from 2016 to 2020, how it would be run again from 2024 to 2028 if he wins a second term. But I think Andrew Clavin is right in something he said in his episode from two days ago. He said, 
there's a wager that's being made on both the Democrat side and the Trump-loving Republican side of the American political spectrum that the left is driven so crazy by Trump that that alone will gin up support and votes and that a lot of folks, on the other hand, they want Trump just because he's so upsetting to people they don't like or they want Trump because people that they don't like really want him. Now, I think this is... I think this is the case, that the left secretly does want Trump to win the nomination, even though they don't want him to be president. Actually, I think they want him to win the nomination because they don't want him to be president. And they feel like they've got his number, and they feel like there are so many scandals that they've ginned up about him that he's an easy one to beat. There's a certain maybe quarter of the American people, possibly, that no matter what, will vote for him aggressively. Uh, there's another quarter or more that probably will, but it's that probably. It's that probably that the left and the corporate media, the establishment politicians, the status quo folk of both parties are very, very good at manipulating. Uh, you know, sadly, tragically, far too good at manipulating. And they think they will have an easier time manipulating those folk with Trump. And they might be right. Now, for my part, I say the left wants Trump to be the nominee precisely because they don't want any Republican to be president at all. I think there's a reverse psychology game that's being played to where if they're saying some nice things about DeSantis, it's because they want DeSantis to be built up enough that the folks who would vote for Trump will refuse to vote for DeSantis. The folks who would vote for DeSantis will refuse to vote for Trump and Democrats just keep on doing what they've been doing. I think there's a very, very manipulative, deceitful, dishonest game that the media has been playing for our entire lifetimes and we need to be aware of it and we need to be savvy. But we also need to be clear about what our principles are. And that's what I'm trying to do here. I might have some people that are upset with me for saying, oh, well, whatever the media is doing to... Trump, they're just going to do it to DeSantis too, like my cousin Mike pointed out, and he's right. He's right. But to that I say, that's exactly why we've got to have a more disciplined person with the media doing what they're doing. I think from what I've seen and what I've heard, and we'll let it play out by all means, I think DeSantis is a better one to counter the game that the media is playing. But I want to play another clip for you. Uh, This one is of Chuck Schumer, speaking of family and politics and the Democrats and the media, et cetera, et cetera. Chuck Schumer, (laughs) Senate Majority Leader, says that we need illegal immigration because Americans are not reproducing themselves as they ought to. And I'll let him say it. We'll play the clip if you haven't heard it yet. But here's Chuck Schumer talking earlier this week about why we need amnesty for however many illegal immigrants there are here in the U.S. Take a listen. We're short of workers. Uh, We have a population that is not reproducing it on its own with the same level that it used to. 
The only way we're going to have a great future in America is if we welcome and embrace immigrants, the dreamers and all of them, because our ultimate goal is to help the dreamers but get a path to citizenship for all 11 million or however many undocumented there are. <clears throat> however many. However many. <laughs> what if it's 110 million, by the way? You know, it's a, it's a funny thing. It's, it's so amusing to me that the Democrats, they are for abortion without any restrictions whatsoever. They are talking our kids into becoming transgendered and homosexuals. They are losing their minds at the prospect that the Supreme Court decision that legalized contraceptives would be overturned. They were furious that the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. <laughs> they, they, they're, they're trying to hijack uh, the economy of not just the U.S., but the world to combat climate change because supposedly we've got too many people. We're now past 8 billion globally, although that's expected to start declining given falling birth rates and uh, not to be too graphic here, but rapidly declining sperm counts for men. It's like 2%, two uh, uh, 2.6% actually, uh, to be more precise. It's it's 2.6% yearly that the sperm count for men on average is declining. You've got a, over 30% of young people sterilizing themselves now that Roe v. Wade is overturned. That's going to be their primary uh, means of birth control. For men, it may be reversible. For women, it's not. And what does Chuck Schumer say? <laughs> he doesn't say, hey, we need a national ban on abortion. He doesn't say, I hope that the Supreme Court does overturn the legalization of contraceptives. He, he doesn't say we need to stop comprehensive sex education in the schools and you know, transing the kids and drag queens story hour and promoting homosexuality. You know, he doesn't say that. He says we've got to grant amnesty, grant citizenship to however many illegal immigrants there are because we don't have enough workers, right? So apparently, you know, a couple of things. One, we are going to just keep on not having children, and that's fine with Chuck Schumer. He doesn't want to address that, right, that native-born Americans would stop having kids and stop replacing themselves even. He doesn't want to do anything about that because that would mean, you know, going the whole way on what repealing Roe v. Wade started. He doesn't want to go against at all the normalization of homosexuality and transgenderism, the promotion, actually. It's, it's not normalization alone. It's promotion of, it's celebration of, it's encouragement of transgenderism and homosexuality for American children who grow up into American young people who then don't get married, or if they do, they don't have children themselves, children of their own. You know, we want to combat climate change, but which is it? Are we overpopulated here in the U.S. or are we actually declining to where your social safety net, your welfare state will be unsustainable? Which is it? See, I, I have a better idea. I have a better idea, and it's the exact opposite of the so-called Respect for Marriage Act that advanced in the U.S. Senate with the help of a dozen Republicans, so-called. You know, it's just like you can call it so-called Respect for Marriage Act. You can call them so-called uh, Republicans. 
nix that. Pass legislation that encourages, rewards, celebrates, affirms, promotes traditional marriage. Encourage young people to get married in their early 20s and to have kids. Uh, By the way, if I haven't made it clear, I think this is a ridiculously named bill. I think it's straight out of opposite world. This is not respect for marriage. This is an absolute disrespect of marriage. But I really do wish, you know, Matt Walsh, one of the things he was talking about when he wasn't talking about Trump and DeSantis, that was he, he didn't, right? He didn't talk about Trump and DeSantis that I caught. One of the things he said is, you know, this is totally unnecessary, right? The Respect for Marriage Act, uh, it is trying to solve a problem that we don't have. Even if you want gay marriage to continue on being the law of the land, it's been so-called the law of the land, even though that's not how laws are written. It came from the Supreme Court. It didn't come from Congress, the House, or the Senate, although this is the fix for that. I really do wish the Supreme Court would overturn Obergefell versus Hodges. It was a terrible judicial ruling. It was a bad decision to begin with, and we ought to want it to go away. Walsh says there's no political will for that among Republicans or Democrats. Obviously, the American people don't want that. Not not enough of them do. But going back to the problem Chuck Schumer is admitting to, the Respect for Marriage Act, so-called, is the opposite of helpful if our legislators are truly concerned about a declining birth rate. You know, an interesting point was made by Democrat Senator Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin that the same legal arguments inherent to the overturning of Roe v. Wade could be applied to numerous other cases. She took the floor and said this as she was explaining the importance of the Respect for Marriage Act. The same legal arguments made in overturning Roe v. Wade could be applied to numerous other cases like those related to contraception and marriage. And she's right. And that's good. Walsh says there's no chance of overturning Obergefell v. Hodges. Uh, I think anything is possible at this point. That goes for good things and bad things, unfortunately. But anything is possible. How many of us thought Roe v. Wade could be overturned in our lifetime? I'm thinking as hard as pro-life and abolitionist folks fought in many cases, the number was pretty close to zero. And yet it was a fight worth fighting anyways. And then what do you know? And this I give uh, full credit to Trump for. Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court thanks to his nominees. If Clinton had won in 2016, that would not have been so. And that's why the establishment of both parties hate Trump. They hate him. And that doesn't mean that he's the right candidate, right? I mean, it it is a point in his favor that they hate him. That doesn't mean that he is the best choice. We need to think, you know, a bigger picture than that. And just whatever they say, we say the opposite. Whatever they want, we want the opposite. Because if we're that simple, yes, I'm sorry, but simple, then when they're wise to that fact, they manipulate us like Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck, and they just say uh, rabbit season, and then we say duck season, and then Elmer Fudd pulls the trigger. Speaking of uh, Andrew Clavin, like I was here just a minute ago, and, and speaking also of homosexuality, respect for marriage, etc. Uh, I just found out yesterday that his son, Spencer Clavin, the joke was always no relation, uh, is gay. 
And I think that's really unfortunate. I think that goes without saying. I would hope Andrew Clavin would agree. I don't think he would agree in public because he doesn't want to hurt his son's feelings. But in hearing Andrew Clavin talk about his son being gay, I find this is one of those places where I just really, I, I don't know entirely what the right thing is to say. And I, I mean that specifically with regards to what we make of Andrew Clavin accordingly. And also, you know, the question I've heard for years being asked by progressives and atheists, what if your son comes out as gay someday? What will you say then? Uh, does Clavin affirm what his son is doing or his gay lifestyle? I know that uh, Doug Wilson got in some trouble, caused a bit of a stir for inviting Clavin to speak at an event that Doug Wilson was, uh, you know, in charge of, associated with, overseeing, because Clavin has a son that's gay, and because Clavin says some things that are, you know, not necessarily um, a strong line in the sand regarding homosexuality, etc. Does Clavin affirm that his son is gay or promote that or defend that or say that that's good and legitimate and not sinful? Uh, maybe. I haven't heard it. If he does, I haven't heard it. I don't know about it. But I think this is a difficult thing. I think we need to remember that God's justice, again, going back to biblical principles, not just the biblical principles that tell us that God's plan for sexuality and marriage is thus and accordingly, but also more broadly with regards to justice, God's justice is that children are not to be punished for the sins of their parents, which is, that that's the death knell for critical race theory, by the way. Children are not to be punished for the sins of their fathers or their mothers even. But also parents are not to be punished for the sins of their children. Your blood is on your own head. If you sin, that's on you, apart from Christ. If you're in Christ, well then, Christ has already taken your punishment. He's done more than that, but he didn't need to die for your children's sins or your parents' sins in order to save you. And we do well to remember that with regards to Andrew Clavin. And he spoke to this in one of his episodes that I was watching yesterday while I was programming. And he said he gets all kinds of letters from people being very ugly towards him and his son and demanding that he distance himself more from his son than he does. And whether you agree with Clavin, he has his son on his program occasionally to talk with him, to ask him questions, inviting him to speak to certain issues. His son's got his own media uh, presence. He's got a podcast, I think. But it really is unfortunate. It's a very unfortunate thing. And with regards to the political decisions that we have coming down the pike, we need to know right from wrong. We need to know the difference between truth and falsehood. We need people who are disciplined and consistent and self-controlled and who serve as a good example of what a marriage should be and how to parent. We need not mixed bags, although we all are. We need Jesus. But I'm concerned, going back to DeSantis and Trump, I'm concerned that we're sending mixed messages as Republicans 
as conservatives, as Christians, if we have the option, right? Sometimes we don't, but if we have the option to choose somebody who has an intact marriage, who's been married once, who keeps his household in order, who manages it well, and we say, I want the guy instead who's going to make me rich, who compromises when it comes to his own principles, what he's prepared to say and do, who lacks self-control, as long as he gets me richer. Now, some people in the run-up to 2016 and 2020, who were the never-Trumpers, who I have never been one of, said regarding Trump, if we vote for him, there goes our Christian testimony. And I think that's not true. I, I, I think that's not correct. All, you know, all it takes, again, when it, we're looking at the traps that are being set for us, as soon as you say that, then the game the media plays is to drum up accusations. They don't even have to be true, but accusations, allegations, insinuations regarding whoever you thought had clean hands. And whether those allegations are true or not, if you distance yourself from somebody just because they've been accused of something, that's an injustice too. And I would say there goes your testimony in that case as much or more than if you voted for somebody that you know is compromised. So we don't want that. And that's not workable. But then on the other hand, you know, the folks that voted for Trump anyways, even in the primaries, which I didn't, I didn't vote for him in the primaries. I thought Ted Cruz was a better candidate. I think DeSantis is an even better candidate than uh, Ted Cruz was actually. But the folks who voted for him in the primaries and also argued against the never Trump types said, I'm not voting for him to be the pastor. I'm voting for him to be the president of the United States. And to those folks who still want and insist it's got to be Trump all the way, nobody else will do, we're not voting for him to be our financial advisor and our banker. We're voting for him to be the president. And that means needing to serve as a good example and to exercise leadership. And I think DeSantis would be a better example because I think he is right now. And I think he has been a better example. You know, it's funny, all this talk of globalism and one of the things that was pointed out as far as what, and I think Michael Knowles made this point, what Trump was doing when he made his announcement speech without necessarily going after and attacking specifically some of these other governors who are potentially going to run in 2024, like Yunkin and DeSantis. He was going after them in a subtle way in a more gentlemanly way, more disciplined way, like maybe he is hearing, Trump is hearing some of the critics of his approach to DeSantis recently. Trump is highlighting his international affairs bona fides. And he's making clear he can go and talk tough with world leaders and negotiate trade deals. He can make Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin think twice about trying something in Ukraine or Taiwan because they didn't when he was president. Sure. Okay. Great. Wonderful. That's important. But I think we're kind of reasoning in the opposite direction compared with what we should if we say, because he can do that, therefore he's the best pick as far as an example to set closer to home. I want to see somebody at the helm who reasons in the opposite direction, not 
somebody who starts at the global level and works their way back to the local. That's the problem with globalism, is that it starts at the global level and then reasons backwards to the specific man and woman trying to raise their children. And whatever happens to them and their utility bills and their grocery bills and their health and safety and their economic opportunities, whatever happens to their religious convictions or their free speech, doesn't matter as long as what we want to accomplish at the global level is achieved. And in our next episode, I, I hope, I'm planning it out right now, <clears throat> I hope to speak to this great reset business and Klaus Schwab and some of his recent remarks at the G20, B20 conference in Indonesia. I want to speak to that because I think this is also very important, but I, I have to touch on it a little bit here and now that there is an uncanny resemblance between arguing that Trump should be president because of what he can do on the global stage and then reasoning backwards to the national level, to the state and local level. By contrast, I would say we need to look at, for instance, how is a man relating to his wife? How is a man relating to his children? How is a man relating to his neighbors? How is a man relating to his city and his state? And then give him a shot at a national level. And then when he knows how to provide for, how to protect, how to take care of, how to lead, how to love his wife, his children, his neighbor, his city, his state, his nation, then you send him abroad, if needs be, to work out a deal or no deal or make threats or make promises or make pledges or ask questions of other world leaders. That's the proper direction to be reasoning here. That, I would say, is the Christian position. That is the biblical model. And when I look at it from that standpoint, I think DeSantis is a better option. I think he is comprehensively. We need more young people getting married, having children, raising those children outside of a public school that hates your faith in Christ. We do that, and I think we have a bright future ahead of us. I think that's actually how we make America great again. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. I really do. I've got a board meeting for the Reformed Conservative later this afternoon. I've also got, like I said, a house full of sickies. I think several of us are feeling better today than we were yesterday, but I should go attend to my wife and children. And then I've got more remote programming to do. And I've got some more reading and research to do. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. 
For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegerdashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.